don't do technology for the sake of technology, right? Look for the problem to solve. And again, whether you're a new company or a legacy company, when you think we have to do something digitally, okay, well, what's the problem that needs to be solved? And less about we can do cool things with AI or machine learning or what good for you. But much more important is what, what lights are going to go on for your customers that they're going to say, like, you finally are solving this pain point for me. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we share with you the business stories, ideas, and trends shaping the future of customer experience, told firsthand by the experts themselves in thought-provoking conversations. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And I'm Andy McMillan, CEO at User Testing. And today, we're very excited to have Julia Austin joining us on the Human Insight Podcast. Julia is a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School's Rock Center for Entrepreneurship, where she currently teaches startup operations. Julia is also a certified executive coach, board member, startup advisor, and angel investor. Welcome to the show, Julia. We're so happy to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I visited your classroom at Harvard Business School as a guest lecturer, and I saw firsthand how much your students really love you. They adore you. Um, And for our first (laughs) insight segment, we asked our global contributor network about their favorite teachers, what makes them a great teacher and that person's lasting impact on them. So let's listen to what they had to say. So I'm thinking back a little while to when I finished what we call university in Australia. My favorite lecturer was, was, um, was the one that, um, made it I guess the most engaging and the most fun and yeah the ones I liked were the ones that kind of knew their stuff inside out and were happy to go off on a tangent were happy um, to you know talk about the news of the day almost and, and make it current. So what made them memorable is how they tend to make a monotonous or boring subject interesting. Um he just made it interesting. He made you want to learn and read more Shakespeare. I know he just had a gift for that. And I was blessed to have a teacher like that in college. I remember my uh, favorite professor. And she was a professor of uh, black history. She really made the learning come alive but not only relating what we learned to black history, but also relating it to the world around us. What are the qualities of a good professor and learning experience? Okay, so the good qualities would be that, you know, even you are strict, but you are respectful to your students and you like, you don't dismiss their challenges. The most important quality is to be able to make the students actually relate to what they're learning and also be able to enjoy the learning experience. How has that professor and experience influenced your life after college? I mean, that probably taught me to be a bit more open-minded, a bit more, probably a little more skeptical, a little bit of a better critical thinker. Um, I think that even though I did not go into that particular field, of um for my career i feel like that the experiences he brought out 
the shyness in me. Yeah, <laughs> I was very shy, but he, you know, let me realize I had a voice, you know, that uh, my stories matter to the things that I thought was important to report on. And he listened to that and he helped me find my voice. He gave me the confidence to be the person that I am. I remember my favorite teacher, who's actually my undergrad and graduate uh professor, because I went to the same university for both undergrad and grad, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Bill Gribbins. And like what the contributors said, um, he made the class fun and exciting, um, the the subject matter super relevant to what was happening in the world around us. But also he challenged me in a, in a way that created this like intrinsic motivation to just like do better, do great work. Um, and I thought that that was um, something special that he he gave me. So, Julia, what were your first impressions of the responses and, and what are your goals as a teacher? Yeah. So one of the things I noticed right away from everybody was a consistent, interesting, fun, <clears throat> but also high standards. And that's a balance we, we all try to strike at HBS of um, maintaining high standards and high values in the classroom, um, but also being respectful of our students and their time and their who they are as people. So I try very hard to make the content highly relevant, um, useful, and very focused on, especially for the particular course I teach, it's high utility, it's going to be useful for students, uh, less the, uh, theoretical, but also that it's fun and engaging. And, and that was definitely something I heard in, in all of the statements. Is And I think about my own professors going back to my both undergrad and graduate school was uh, those who really expected a lot from me and held the bar really high so that I did my very best, but also made the content very relevant uh, and interesting to me. So I was excited to learn. Yes, absolutely. So, um, and what I loved about your course, at least uh, the product management course that I sat in on a few times was just how practical it was for the Mm -hmm. students. As you mentioned, it was, there is some theory involved, obviously, but making sure that they have the right ways to approach the problem, they have the right tools and technology, modern day technologies to do their work. Um, Really, really awesome stuff. And right now you're teaching a course uh, about startup operations. So Mm -hmm. based on the course description, it's another experiential learning experience or course. And can you tell us a little bit more about what the course is and what students walk away with? Yeah, absolutely. So the course was, uh, it came about because we had more and more students at HBS who were starting their ventures while they were in school, uh, which is a nice thing that uh, they don't, they used to have to drop out to do their ventures, their startups, but we were seeing more and more students getting traction while they were in school and needing the foundational skills to get their businesses off the ground beyond products. So while I'm a super product nerd, and we'll talk a lot more about product and what makes product great, um, all the things that go around that to create a business was what I was seeing. And I also see with the founders that I mentor was missing. So the course is structured around businesses that are actually happening in the schools. So post-ideation phase, uh, primarily those who are either uh, found a space, a real problem to solve that they really want to dig into all the way through to summer, fully venture-backed and have employees and actually running their companies while they're in school. So it's a weekly seminar uh, structured course where we spend about an hour doing some sort of content. Uh, it could be around product discovery. It could be about talking to customers. It could be financial matters, legal matters, uh, how do you write great, great job descriptions, all the things that they need to really get their businesses off the ground beyond, including product, but beyond product. And uh, they have weekly deliverables that help move the needle for their businesses. So uh, again, writing a job description or, or doing a product roadmap or doing things that are highly tactical, but also useful for their companies. And uh, we also do what we call critiques or crits, 
where after about an hour of content, students uh, each week, we have four teams who get up in front of their classmates. And Janelle, I think you saw this in my course too, when I used to teach my product course and get feedback from their students, which I find whether you're a product manager or whether you're a founder, getting used to asking for feedback and getting feedback is critical. Um, something that uh, is a muscle that needs to be built, but also a lot of smart people in the room who have great ideas for them and just getting comfortable being having a little humility and starting to get answers from beyond their own very brilliant brains. I think it's absolutely incredible. Uh, just the idea that there's folks uh, in and around Harvard Business School talking about product management and best practices and how to do this. Uh, it's such a long uh, way from where we were when I started. I started in product management maybe 20 years ago. It's been a long time. And we used to talk about how no two product managers used to come to the job from the same path. You know, it was sort of this thing people found their way into from all parts of the company, you know, different backgrounds, um, you know, kind of different perspectives. Um, so it's, it's exciting to hear kind of formalizing to some extent. But um, from your perspective, both as somebody who's been a product manager and a product leader and as an educator, like, what do you what do you think makes a great product manager? Like when you meet somebody, you're like, oh, they're going to be a you know a great yeah, product person. Yeah. Uh, what characteristics do you think those are? Yeah, there's sort of three fundamental characteristics that I really believe in. Um, they they definitely have to have a strong uh, domain understanding. They don't have to be an expert, but really have the aptitude to understand a domain and get up to speed and really familiar with the customer and, and really be the voice of the customer and be comfortable with being in the customer's shoes. I think that's an important skill. Uh, they have to have a great EQ, uh, not only to interact with customers, but their ability to build relationships across an organization, whether it's an early stage organization or more mature, uh, from designers and engineers to product leaders, strategists, uh, higher level, uh, down to all support folks, right? Really being able to navigate an organization, understanding everybody has a different view of the customer and the product and being comfortable uh, context switching a lot between all of those. And then I think the last piece is uh, being comfortable with the organization's mission and having it be a good fit for them. So what I've seen is great product managers landing in a company that's really not a great fit for them. Maybe it's too early stage or too big uh, where they're gone, they've gone too narrow and they need to do something with more breadth. So being comfortable in the particular organization is as important as their skills. I, I do think the personal piece and that ability to context switch and, and be engaging with lots of different audiences is critical. Yeah, absolutely. I will say that uh, after joining your course the first time, I think it was Andy that I actually talked to afterwards, and I was like, "You're not going to believe it. There's like a there's a course at HBS or product <laughs> management. Like this is amazing." And also doubly amazing is that I remember when you had me come in to talk about the importance of customer feedback and show them the mm. user testing platform and give them a demo it was sort of like, this wasn't a new concept. Like talking to your customers was not a new concept for them in that course. It was something that had been integrated into the course from day one. And that was super impressive as well. Um, so that was sort of like my own personal, um, I don't know, <laughs> Nirvana moment uh, going to, to your course and recognizing both of those things. Um, I still so, do that, and, by the way, Janelle, sorry, I'm going to jump in because we still do that even yeah. in this course. Um, I am pretty shameless with pushing my students to get out and talk with customers and get feedback. And I'm a strong advocate for feedback, never stopping. You don't, I'll get this question, especially from founders early on of when do I stop talking to my customers and getting feedback and start building my product? And I, and I'm like, never, like never, you, you, you need to be talking <laughs> all the time. And, um, and I make it required that they turn in 
examples and, and not just interviews, but actual scrappy tests and, and engagement or ethnographic studies or whatever they're doing with customers all the time is, is it, again, building that muscle if you have to interact with your customers. It's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in, in addition to product management, you've also got a very rich background in entrepreneurship, business strategy. You've led innovation at places like VMware and Akamai, and you're advising uh, countless startups, uh, including Human First and We the People. So I'll ask you the age-old question that everyone sort of wonders. How do you know when you have achieved product market fit? Oh, yes. Yeah, such a hard question. So I... I believe product market fit means you're building something that is having a repeatable user experience outcome, right? And so, and you're seeing some amount of exponential growth. So it's happening over and over again. Uh, your customers almost feel like they can't live without it. Like if you were to suggest we're, we're shutting down, we're not going to be a company anymore, uh, or your product's no longer going to be available, they'd pay almost anything for you to keep it going for them. And with a reasonable size TAM, right? So there's enough people using it and you're seeing that exponential growth. So it often is simpler than most people think. I think PMF for some uh, organizations or some product leaders is this belief it has to be multifaceted, tons of features and capabilities. And when you look at some of the great companies out there that got started, where they got PMF, we'll use OTP, we the people as an example, one of my uh, companies that I've invested in and advise. Uh, they they had a grand vision for uh, women's body care, but they started with a razor, and that's all it was was the razor. And they just made the razor beautiful and appropriate for women's use, and were highly tailored around what we cared about as women. And that was their anchor point, and they just did that excellently, and then built something around that. And I do see whether it's digital or physical product that miss of what PMF really is. It's not lots of customers paying for lots of customizations or different features. It's one thing that you can do over and over again and do it well to the point that everyone feels like you're, you're foundational for me, whether it's personal or for my business. I think that's spot on. I, I, I heard a founder one time say product market fit is one of those things. If you keep asking yourself, if you have it, you don't yet. <laughs> yes, that's and when right. you do, you're like, boy, this is really like, this is moving. So I, I think that's, uh, that's well-framed. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about is, you know, you, you've done some startup advising and, and you mentor students that are entering the workforce. Um, I think when we talk about innovation, we sometimes always think about these sort of digital first companies, mm. like the disruptive companies. Uh, but there's a lot of companies that are more traditional companies, been around a long time, right? B built their business before the world was digital. Um, and But they need to go out now and develop new products and sort of reinvent their current products um, in the marketplace. So what advice do you give to folks that are either in those roles or thinking about taking one of those roles as they leave HBS, where they're thinking about entering a company that's kind of going more through digital transformation right. than sort of starting off digitally native? Right. And so the first advice I would give is don't do technology for the sake of technology, right? Look for the problem to solve. And again, whether you're a new company or a legacy company, when you think we have to do something digitally, okay, well, what's the problem that needs to be solved? And less about we can do cool things with AI or machine learning or what good for you. But much more important is what, what lights are going to go on for your customers that they're going to say, like, you finally are solving this pain point for me, right? And then the second piece is go out there and, again, not just talk to them, but experiment, right? This mindset of uh, interviewing versus experimenting is a mistake I see way too often. Again, whether you're a legacy company or whether you're uh, a new company, 
go try things. Go find your early adopters. If you're a legacy company, you have customers. You probably have a lot of loyal customers. So go figure out who can be your early adopters or perhaps pilot things with you and try things with you and really understand the pain points. Again, not to just provide technology, but to really understand how you can be more helpful in the digital world. Uh, creating an app just for the sake of creating an app, say a mobile app that's going to complement something that you've already been offering on a website, uh, or again, trying to do something creative with AI or machine learning, is it going to register as something that's useful for your customers? And and again, iterating over and over again to understand it, not going out once, talking to three customers and coming back and saying, now we know what to build. No, you don't, right? You've really got to iterate on that. So I think it's my, my biggest advice is just get out there. There's this um, sense that startups are supposed to be the ones that are scrappy. And I guess that's the last point I'll put on this is, Later stage companies, I was at VMware, you know, we were we were massive near the end of my time there after eight and a half years. And we were still going out and doing super scrappy things with our newer technology, right? We we were the coming out with a solution for mobile phones before iPhone existed. And we were trying to figure out how we we're gonna get carriers to adopt what we wanted to do, put, putting virtual machines on on mobile devices back when most people had Blackberries. But we knew it was coming. And we didn't just go and talk to the carriers. We actually started to find early adopters or companies that might be thinking about how their employees might put virtual machines on their phones uh, by doing, creating very, very scrappy MVPs and just asking a few employees at these big old companies to just do it. Um, that was scrappy. And we were essentially a legacy company at that point. I don't know, maybe not, but close enough. We were big enough and mature enough that that was kind of crazy for us to do. But we had the space and the freedom to do it. So I guess that's a, the, the, the other piece of this is... Um, Legacy companies need to carve out time to really do this right and, and people and resources and protect it. Uh, running innovation, both at VMware and uh, it's part of my job as a VP of engineering at Akamai, was doing these carve outs and, and actually finding teams of people who, not just the smartest in the room or the, the PhDs, but a nice cross section of folks on your team to really have protected time to go explore these things or you're never going to get there. And if they're seen as an extra that if we have to do budget cuts, especially in these times, uh, those are the first things to go. You're never going to move your business forward. And so they should be as valued as the activities that you're doing for your core business. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. I, I think the idea that you can be scrappy even at a big company and listen to your customers. That's the other thing. You're right. I mean, it's funny how you end up with one set of customers and then you get nervous that they're going to go somewhere else to this sort of digital disruptor. And I'm amazed how many companies just don't take the time to go talk to that customer. Like, what's interesting about the digital part of this disruptor? Right. And maybe putting that on our platform, but again, not for the sake of technology, to your point, could be so powerful. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I met someone who was uh, hired into a large bank, and uh, they came out of the digital first world. They were so excited. They told me that this bank had hired them, and one of their big goals was to drive their daily active users. And I just remember thinking, I don't know that I want to use my bank app every single day. Like, I'm not really sure that that's a goal. Yes. Like, you should be... You know, it's sort of an interesting mindset of like, you know, not really thinking about their customers, just thinking, I, you know, that they had heard that this was something they should go do. And so I, I really like your advice of sort of don't just pick technology, just don't do the things you think you're supposed to go do, like really go talk to some customers and be scrappy about it. It's really powerful. Yeah. And I, on that point, too, I, I want to mention that um, the metrics to measure, to your point exactly, of what, what says success for this thing that we're about to do, right? So the example I'll use is like, 
open table, you don't want people in there all day, every day, right? And, and measuring in and out is really important, right? I want someone to be able to get in, make a reservation and get the heck out, right? And you could say for a banking app, it could be, I want someone to be able to deposit their check, take a photo of it and get out. It's not how long they're in there and how active they're in there, right? Transactionally, short time is actually better than like maybe a social app where, no, then I want them in there all day, right? So I see that mistake often yep. of, of like, what does success look like in this particular level of engagement? Yeah. And I going, just going back quickly to your point about uh, being scrappy in a big company. I mean, I love that idea of just experimenting and trying things out. We work with a, quite a few big companies that are working to become more customer centric, uh, and they're building these large programs with a lot of change management involved. And that's one way to go about doing it, sort of like one avenue, but it's a big lift. Um, and being able to find some resources to do some scrappy work as well, alongside some of those big kind of mandates that the, the company is driving. Um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good complement. Um, and just sort of another, another way to think about how to shake things up a little bit. So uh, in addition to the advising and the, the lecturing, you're also the founder of Good For Her, which is a nonprofit community for women founders that fosters their growth as they you know, navigate these entrepreneurial journeys. Um, and so for our next insight segment, we asked user testing contributors who were also women business owners some advice and what they what they uh, you know advise uh, other women entrepreneurs on. So uh, let's listen to what they said. Uh, knowing now what you didn't know then, what advice would you give yourself before starting your business? I guess don't kind of bite off more than you can chew because um, I had kind of grand plans about um, you know how I wanted to start and what kind of inventory I wanted. And I feel like I probably should have, um, you know, planned smaller um, and it would have been easier for me to, to grow gradually. Um, yeah, so I'm still pretty new to it, but I think like even in a short period of time, a couple of months that I've been doing it, it would just be to like, don't be so hard on myself. I think that you need to just go for it. You need to just try Make a list of priorities. Um, make sure that you um, create um, a budget, a deadline, and try to stick to it. And getting yourself out there is probably one of the most important things you can do. And, um, you know, face your fears and, and do that. Um, I think when I started, I was a little shy and um, definitely didn't uh, take chances and connect with as many people as I probably could have. Don't be afraid to ask questions of about from people who've um, been there before you, because a lot of um, a lot of the probably some of the best advice that I've gotten have been from people who are entrepreneur themselves and they, you know, they lived it. So they they kind of have tips that you can't really read in any book. So that would definitely be like number one. So listen to, to people who've been there before. It's okay to make mistakes and everyone will make mistakes. And what defines you is how you bounce back from mistakes, not what caused you to make them in the first place. I think that you should also, any positive feedback you get, um, any successes, keep them in a folder, keep track of them and read them when you're feeling low. Um, don't let the difficulties 
um, and challenges turn you off to pursuing this. Um, it's every every business will come with its challenges. Every business has people telling, or every product will have people saying that they don't like the product. There, there's it's not always for everybody. It doesn't mean that you have a bad idea or if you don't have a bad product. I think every entrepreneur should know that nothing um, is off the table and that success is measured personally. And so you don't have to have a $10 billion business. You can have a side business, a side gig. Um, you can, you know, make cookies. You can clean cars. You can um, mow people's lawns, all different types of things. And so I really feel like no matter what age you are, no matter what you got going on, you really need to understand that the sky really is the limit. Success is measured how you want it to be. And you can do something that doesn't have to be all consuming. It doesn't have to be severely expensive. Um, One piece of advice that you just gave was echoed in that segment, which is starting small. Um, so your point about we the people and starting with sort of a very sort of narrow kind of, I don't want to say narrow, that sometimes has a negative connotation, but sort of like starting with a focus not having to build this big, huge thing, but starting with something small and focused. And a woman entrepreneur basically said the same thing. So that that stood out to me. Um, what stood out to you, Julia? Yeah, there were a few things there. I think one of them is defining what success is. And this is actually the opening segment in my course. I, I ask all my students to think about what success means to them, uh, not what their parents think, not what their friends think, not what their former professors think, but what does success look like to you? doesn't always have to be money. It could be built a beautiful product. It could be a lifestyle business. It could be a lot of things. And a few folks in the video mentioned that as well as you get to decide what success means to you. The other is uh, this resiliency around feedback, right? I mentioned this earlier that we practice this in my course, this feedback dilemma of I, I'm hearing six different things about what I should go do next with this product, or some people hate it and some people love it, how to parse that is really, really hard because at some point, and I bet, you know, back in the early days of usertesting.com, it was the same thing. Like what's most important right now? And what am I, what signal am I getting? And what am I deciding I'm going to listen to? It's super, super hard for, for founders to do. So those are two things that jumped out uh, immediately from listening to the videos and something that I try to instill upon all the founders that I work with. I'll even say when I give feedback, take it or leave it. I'd love to understand if you don't take it, you know, if you do something else, I just want to learn and understand from you why you took that direction just for my own learning, but not as a judgment call. But I'm, you know, I do this for a living. There are a lot of people who give feedback, who get insulted or hurt or concerned or judgmental if they're not heard. And I think it's, it takes a strong founder to be able to decide what they want to do and, and communicate that well. Awesome. We're going to move into our lightning round. So this is a series of questions that we ask everyone oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that comes on the podcast. So first we'll start with what's a book that you've recently read that you'd recommend to our listeners? Uh, I always hate this question only because I never want to answer just one book. So, um, so I love this question because it makes me want to say a million things. So I'm going to say three. <laughs> so uh, the first one that I recommend to everyone I coach and, and mentor as, as well as my students is Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. Uh, love this book. Read it several times. It's so thoughtful in terms of who we are as leaders. And, and the number one takeaway is about integrating humility as a leader and being vulnerable. And the more vulnerable you are as a leader, again, whether you're a product leader or whether you're a CEO, 
founder, having that humility and understanding uh, empathy for your uh, employees and your customers, so critical. So I, I love that book. So I highly recommend that. The second one is The Psychology of Money. And it sounds very tactical, but it's actually quite uh, interesting in terms of how we as human beings think about money and how it stems back to our childhood and, and our upbringing and how we bring that into our personal and professional lives. And it's an assigned book for my course as well. But I, I do see interactions and you think about it right now, whether it's with your partners outside of work or inside of work, how we respond and react to how we spend money, our budgets, how we think about pricing, how we think about fundraising, all stems from our personal interactions with money and a lot of baggage that we bring in. So the book does a great job helping you understand that as well as how to think about long-term goals and strategies around money. So then the last one I'll mention is Bird Girl, only because I am a birder. Came one during COVID. I know I'm not alone. There are a lot of people who've become birders since COVID. And it's not out yet. So shameless plug for a new book that's coming out. And it's written by a very, very young woman who's an environmentalist and her story about how she became a birder at six years old and how she's still a birder. And it's just a fabulous story. So if you wanted something entertaining, that is one I'd recommend. Those are all great recommendations. I'll have to check out the bird one and the psychology of money. I do love Brene Brown. She has a great podcast as well. Um, yeah, she's unreal. She really is. She really is. What's a p- one piece of advice that you give to someone trying to convince others to invest in customer feedback? Best advice I'd give to someone who's trying to convince someone else to get customer feedback is that the magic happens with the conversions of your customer feedback and your own ideas. And so just having your own ideas by yourself is not enough. And it's that, again, science behind innovation is the compounding of ideas on top of each other and bringing in lots of things versus just having uh, tunnel vision and only thinking about your own ideas. So the value in customer feedback, whether that's interviewing, whether that's doing uh, concierge simulation type tests, whether it's you know, ethnography and just watching customers in their daily lives or, or doing what they do and just learning and understanding where their pain points are by observing, all of those things are value add. So doing discovery, whether it's manually or using a great tool like usertesting.com or whatever it is to to really get that feedback is invaluable and, and critical for the best products out there. Shameless plug. <laughs> you can cut that part out. <laughs> we love shameless plugs. <laughs> um, they seriously do promote the product all the time. Just saying like, it's not because I'm on this podcast, but I really do. Yeah. <laughs> we appreciate that. Um, so last question, when you think about the future of product management you know, over the next five to 10 years, what are you most excited about? So I'm most excited about product management right now because it's finally here. It's finally for years in my early days of PM, we were sort of the sidekicks that were the easy rules to cut if you know things weren't great or misunderstood employees and businesses. And I finally see that product management is not only valued, but held in, in a high regard in organizations in a way they never would. So what excites me the most is the opportunity for individuals who want to get into product. The growth opportunity is insane. I'm seeing former PMs of of mine who are now CPOs, chief product officers, to founders of their own businesses with great skills because they were PMs. You know, as we know, most founders are their first product managers in their companies. So I'm just pumped to see what's possible in terms of the role. And then the other side is the tools. Again, I think what's available now out there makes being a product manager so much easier than it used to be when you have tools that can do high fidelity prototypes that that a product manager can do versus needing to pay an engineer to do that. 
they're so empowered with tools that are out there right now from data capture, uh, you know, again, tools like usertesting.com and others to be able to interact with customers they weren't able to access before. Uh, video, there's just so many things now that are available to PMs that just give them superpowers that, again, when I first started out in product, were just not even conceivable. So super exciting for a product manager right now. Yeah, absolutely. Between a lot of the material and sort of guidance that they have, whether it's through books or or taking courses to the tech, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a very fun playground for uh, the product management uh, space right now. Yeah, completely. And, and 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 the pace. I mean, the fact that you can build and ship stuff globally yeah, so quickly yeah. now, like it's a very rewarding job. Whereas back in the waterfall days, you'd have an idea and it would take you twelve totally. months to get it into market, and then you'd find out it was slightly off, and then it's like another like. Right. So it's it's sort of it does feel like a magical time for being in product management right now. So I think that's that's a good perspective, Julia. Yeah, and I'm glad. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that part up too because that's something that uh, again breaking those old habits of waiting and seeing and saying, what's keeping you? We're not worried about IP as much anymore as we used to be. And being stealthy is not really a thing anymore, unless you're building some like really strong IP that you have to protect. But just get out there and start learning and look what's available to you to do that. It's phenomenal. So exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Julia, I'm so thankful for, for you joining us on the podcast. I'm so fortunate that we got a chance to connect a few years back. So this has been fantastic. Um, thank you for, for all of your expertise and guidance uh, here during the episode. Yeah, it was really great. <laughs> it's a delight for me as well. I always love talking about these topics. So thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, please share it with a friend or coworker. If you think it could have been better, let us know. Email us at podcast at usertesting.com. Thanks.